welcome to Carrying On The Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring For The Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Caring on the Go for the March 2023 issue. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. I'm excited because the AMDA annual meeting in Tampa is right around the corner and we'll all be connecting in person. And I'd like to let our listeners who are attending the meeting know that we'll be doing a special live recording of Caring on the Go in the exhibit hall on Friday, March 10th at 2 p.m. So I hope you'll be able to join us. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, we'll be highlighting our March 2023 issue of Caring, which is a special topic issue focusing on pain. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program, and she also conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Beth, welcome back to Caring on the Go. I hope all is well with you. Thanks, Carl. I'm thrilled to be back and really looking forward to Tampa. Well, great. So um, we're going to kick off today's session talking about the lead front page article by Christine Kilgore about managing pain in older patients with insights from a whole lot of subject matter experts in post-acute and long-term care. And obviously, every patient is different. There's no one-size-fits-all approach. You know, it's it's person-centered care, especially in this geriatric population where there's so much variability. Uh, so what are your takeaways from this article, Dr. Gallick? Thanks, Carl. So this article um, that Christine um, did for us really focuses on chronic pain in post-acute and long-term care settings. And we know that the most common cause of chronic pain among our residents in these settings is musculoskeletal pain. And again, no surprise, many of our patients either can't or don't report pain. Um, and I thought Christine did a nice job with the experts of emphasizing the importance of the assessment of pain and engaging and involving the nursing assistants in really getting a good history about the symptoms that um, individuals um, may be displaying that may be reflective of pain. I also um, enjoyed um, several of Barbara uh, Zarowitz's comments. Uh, she's a PharmD and also an MSW. She's the senior advisor to the Peter Lamy Center on Drug Therapy and Aging at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. And she talked a lot about holistic individualized approach, which we know about, 
um, the importance of really identifying the type of pain, whether it's musculoskeletal or neuropathic. And I think the AMDA uh, CPG on pain and pocket guide does a really nice job of this. Um, and her contributions focused on the importance of thinking about medication safety, about what the patient can tolerate, and just giving ideas about how to closely monitor for potential adverse consequences of some of the pain medications that we use. Um, some of the other um, contributors talked about addressing concurrent depression and anxiety that um, so often um, may happen in the context of uh, chronic pain. And then Barbara Resnick and Travis Neal um, uh, gave us a lot of ideas about non-farm approaches, whether that's personalized distraction in the form of music, conversation, activities, or more formal psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, in addition to things like massage, heat, cold, exercise, um, and you know, acupressure. So lots of um, uh, good tips in there and a great overview on pain. Yeah, I thought it was an excellent article and it does mention a lot of the different, different strategies. And really the whole issue is chock full of, of uh, good stuff for those of us who sometimes struggle with appropriate treatment of pain. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the importance of assessing pain and what's causing it and, and, and that sort of thing. And our next article that we're going to discuss on page two just happens to be your caring collaborative column this month dealing with how we assess pain in patients with dementia. And that can be a real challenge to those of us who work with this population, uh, since a lot of times they're not able to uh, articulate exactly where it's hurting or, you know, much less tell you uh, the characterization of, the you know, is it a burning pain and whatnot. So I know there are a number of tools we can use for assessment, and sometimes behavioral disturbances can actually be a manifestation of pain symptoms. So sometimes treating pain empirically can can reduce those expressions of distress. But uh, anyway, Beth, what are your favorite tools that you can share with our readers from uh, writing this piece? Sure, Carl. I, I started writing out, I started when I started writing this article, I um, intended to talk about assessment and management of pain in older adults with dementia and found that I kind of ran out of my word limit. So um, the next piece is coming next month. Um, right. So I saw that. Yeah. about I, That's excellent. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I'm, I'm kind of at my word limit. I need to stop now. Um, but this issue um, focused on a kind of three uh different um, instruments that are um, observational scales, and they each have different kind of advantages and disadvantages. Um, and the one that we're probably uh, the most accustomed to that has been used more um, widely in the United States is the pain assessment in advanced dementia, also um, known as pain AD. It was actually published in JAMDA back in 2003. It's a five item Likert scale and the Likert scale goes from zero to two. And it measures um, certain behavioral um, presentations such as negative vocalizations, body language, consolability, um, breathing and facial expression. Mm. And the range of the score is zero to 10 with 10 being more likely to be reflective of pain. And I think the advantage to this one is it's rather quick. 
Um, you know, it can and and pretty straightforward. There are two other ones that um, I've become acquainted with, and I just wanted to share those as well. One is the pain assessment checklist for seniors with limited ability to communicate. And um, this was actually published in a nursing journal. It's longer and so probably wouldn't be ideal for clinical practice when time can be so precious. But if you're doing, um, you know, a research study or if you really want to get a good handle on someone's um, pain, this is a 60 item measure. Um, that looks at 60 specific symptoms in, you know, again, five domains. And then the last one is um, called the um, Mobilization Observation Behavior Intensity Dementia Pain Scale 2, which means it was, you know, kind of 2.0, the revised version. And this one is more brief. Um, so I think would be appropriate for clinical practice. It was uh, published in a Scandinavian journal. And again, it looks at different pain behaviors um, in terms of noises, facial expressions, um, defensive behaviors. The other thing that I liked about this one is it had a standardized guided movement of different body parts so that you could um, rate um, pain with movement of of limbs and, and different body parts. So um, all of them have um, some evidence of validity and reliability. And, you know, depending on what you're looking at, I think they all present some um, potential options. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, a 60 point scale is probably not something we can expect our floor nurses to have time to do. But, no, uh, no. But, but if you were doing a particular study or you had someone you just couldn't get a handle on things and you really wanted to do a thorough assessment, that that could be um uh, something to consider, but it's a um, really designed as a research tool. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, obviously, a short ten-point scale is kind of more in line with our traditional, uh, you know, numerical scales for pain and that sort of thing. So maybe a little bit more user-friendly. Although, of course, we've moved away from relying too heavily on those. Uh, but uh, anyway, any advanced pearls you want to share about the about treatment? Uh, I know we'll talk about it probably next month. But so I think you know the the main um, take home point will be you know we we tend to treat uh, patients with dementia with pain at least we should similarly to individuals who don't have dementia. I mean the treatment options really are the same. We just have to be much more careful. Um, about monitoring for adverse um, consequences because, um, you know, again, many of these patients with dementia won't be able to report or tell us certain things. Right, right. And certainly, uh, yeah, if you give somebody an opioid and then now they don't have a bowel movement for five days or something like that, you've got to be vigilant about that sort of right. thing. Right. So that's kind of the main take home point. Good. Well, I look forward to discussing <laughs> that next month. Uh, so anyway, next, I'm pleased that our illustrious editor decided to feature my On My Mind column in the March issue, which is entitled, Pain Can Be a Total Pain. And the main message I was trying to get across was that basically every patient is different. You know, people have different pain tolerance levels. Uh, some would rather experience pain, even severe pain, than be altered at all by any kind of medication, while others are very averse to any pain and would rather be, you know, heavily sedated uh, than to have to suffer even mild pain. So it's about person-centered care. It's not always, you know, cookbook evidence-based pain treatment, especially in our care setting. And we just, we have to be nimble and creative sometimes. 
and also that you know if we aren't able to manage pain with what we have in our bag of tricks that we need to be willing to ask for help you know like a formal pain consultation uh so what stood out to you in my in my column beth so carl what i'd like to to say to our listeners is if you only have time to read one article about focused on pain in this issue i thought yours was um, really ideal in the sense. Oh, stop. No, I'm serious. You covered a lot of stuff in a short period of time. And, you know, it was a nice holistic um, um, overview, really. And and that you touched on not just physical pain, but emotional, spiritual, psychosocial. And I really loved that while you're acknowledging those um, physiological correlates to pain, but you emphasized how pain is such a subjective experience mm-hmm. and how important it is to listen and to our patients as much as they can tell us or demonstrate for us in their behavior to try to understand um, you know, their preferences um, and what they're experiencing. And that will really help in your decisions related to pain management. So if this is the only one you're going to read on pain, I would I would <laughs> do it. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And, and I mean, we didn't I didn't get into sort of substance use disorders and that sort of thing. And those people that, um, you know, seem to uh, just want to get more medication. And so, you know, they might be lying there, um, you know, almost almost asleep and, uh, you know, clearly altered. And then you ask them what their pain level is and it's a 10 or an 11. And, and uh, uh, that's a challenge. And sometimes it's good to get the, an addiction medicine specialist to, uh, to weigh in on, on pain management in these complex patients, right? Uh, Absolutely. Maybe long acting rather than the short acting that give them a bump in their blood level and sort of self-reinforce and that. But, but ultimately, and especially in our population, um, well, especially in the people with, let's say, limited life expectancy, uh, I'm less concerned about the potential for substance use. And in our facilities, it's getting doled out. So it's not like they can, uh, you know, uh, take half the bottle just because they want to or, or that sort of thing, escalating the dose. Um, well, great. Well, thanks for the compliments. I appreciate it. Uh, and so finally, let's talk about Dr. Dan Hamowitz's provocative article on the bottom of page one, basically arguing against universal supplementation of vitamin D in our post-acute and long-term care population. And I have to say, Dan and I agree about almost everything, but in my patient population, vitamin D deficiency is so prevalent and you know confirmed by lab work uh, that I almost always do supplement it. And... Uh, you know, Dr. Hamowitz feels that deprescribing vitamin D may be a reasonable option in patients with limited life expectancy or low risk of falls and fractures. And I think, well, you know, there are reasons beyond falls and fractures uh, to prescribe vitamin D. So anyway, Beth, what are your thoughts about this article? So I always in, enjoy um, articles that Dan is one of the authors on because he he does like to take um, a little bit of a controversial approach, but you know backs up some of what he says with um, you know a good thorough review of the literature. So we know that our post-acute long-term care population is really at high risk for vitamin D deficiency, and um, a little over three quarters are actually deficient, um, and 
you know, I think we all do a lot of screening and treating vitamin D deficiency and, you know, supplementation of vitamin D in post-acute and long-term care. And, um, you know, we know that benefits have, you know, been kind of widespread in terms of improved bone health, um, related to uh, muscle strength and sarcopenia, you know, treating sarcopenia. Um, Dan really focused a lot on um, the decreased risk of falls and fractures and some of the data around that. There's been some data to suggest that it may help um, lessen infections. I, I guess um, in, in looking at what he shared um, he, with the focus mostly on falls and fractures, um, recent studies in a community dwelling um, older adult population demonstrated that vitamin D supplementation didn't result in a significantly lower risk of fracture. And these were studies published in like 2022 and, and then another one in um, a meta-analysis in 2017 mm. um, that it, it wasn't as protective as we once thought. However, in post-acute and long-term care, the outcomes are a little more mixed depending on the studies that you read. So I, you know, Given all that, I think, you know, it, it's always good to consider um, new new evidence as it comes out and, you know, to kind of constantly reevaluate our practice. And, and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy articles that Dan has been um, engaged and involved with. And he had some co-authors on this as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I always enjoy Dan's uh, comments and his sense of humor and so on. But but uh, I mean, in my practice, of course, if somebody's on hospice and they're, you know, they're, there's no compelling reason to insist that they continue vitamin D. But on the other hand, I'm not usually twisting people's arms to stop it. It's not a priority to me like it might be, you know, a priority to stop uh, a PPI or, or, or even multivitamins that are, you know, there's much less evidence. How about you in your clinical practice, Beth? Do you plan to make any changes? So, you know, I don't do a whole lot of vitamin D prescribing because my focus is more on the um, kind of the neuropsychiatric management uh, with dementia. But, it, you know, it's something I, you know, I think if anything COVID taught us is thinking about pill burden and administration. And so in the cases of you know, folks who are not likely to leave their bed or, um, you know, really at a low risk of falls and, you know, at end of life, it, it might be a reasonable option to consider. Well, good. Um, so, you know, that's about it. The word, I do want to mention there were multiple other great articles in this issue about pain, uh, you know, including but not limited to Alan Horowitz's legal column. And dear Dr. Steve Levinson's regulatory angle on pain uh, and a few other pieces in this March issue that stood out to me were an article from Dr. Skol, uh, Dr. Scott Bolhack and his colleagues about an organization I had not heard of called POSIC, P-A-W-S-I-C, which is the Post-Acute Wound and Skin Integrity Council. This is a nonprofit, uh, sort of an expert consensus panel. Uh, that includes a great checklist for wound programs in our facilities. So if you're, you know, uh, thinking about contracting with one of these surgical wound groups that comes around, uh, it's it's really nice, and uh, you can also get it on their website. Also, there's a nice tribute to Chris Laxton, uh, whom I'm really fond of and in awe of, and uh, you know, he's been our superlative AMDA ex executive director 
for the last 10 years and Chris is getting ready to retire uh, after our March meeting. He will really be missed. So I encourage people to uh, read the article and then uh, show up to the meeting and let's uh, toast his retirement together. Uh, so anyway, Dr. Gallick, before we close, do you have any final comments or wisdom to share on these or other articles that you especially like from this issue? So you you actually picked some of my favorite ones. <laughs> I had a hard time uh, selecting this time. I know Alan's legal columns are always quite popular because he does give that um, you know unique perspective. He has a background in nursing and and now is an attorney practicing in the area of po- area of post acute and long term care. And um, you know I think we can't say enough good things about Chris and all that he's done for. Um, AMDA and and all of the members. So we wish him well in a happy retirement. Yeah. Um, Well, so great. That's going to wrap it up for the March 2023 Carrying on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gallick and Managing Editor Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities Please take a look at the March issue, available, as always, without a paywall, at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. I hope we'll see some of you listeners in person in Tampa. Uh, Beth uh, will be there along with Tess and me. And come by and support us or heckle quietly when we do our special edition podcast on March 10th at 2 p.m. in the exhibit hall. Meanwhile, Beth, thank you again for spending your time with Carrying On The Go. Thanks so much, Carl. Now, until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Carrying On The Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, Visit PALTC.org slash podcast.